0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I never knew love before. And then came the stick to wrestling podcast. I want to thank Dion Warwick for penning that song about her favorite podcast. So long ago. I am John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the Major League of Professional Wrestling Podcast. Before we get rolling, um, I want to encourage everyone to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. If you have not already, there is no better time than to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group because last night, just last night, I am recording this on Thursday the 25th. Happy birthday, Ric Flair. I got massively sick, sickest I've ever been since 2008, and I'm staying away from everyone, obviously. It's not COVID. It's not anything that serious. It's just a really bad stomach bug. I was up all night, and any time I had a little bit of energy, I posted old school results. So the board is flooding with results that you can talk about, learn about the whole nine yards. With that, I have been looking forward to doing the show for a long time with Jamie Ward, and it's the first of two episodes. I thought they both came out really good. We revisited the year-end awards for the year of 1980. Let's roll. We are going to be doing the 1980 year-end awards, retroactively, obviously. We're going to start by one, and it's going to be a combination of, like, Wrestling Observer criteria and Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria. So here we go. This is a Wrestling Observer-only one. Most underrated wrestler of 1980. This is basically a guy who should have gotten a way bigger push but didn't. Jamie, who's your candidate?
1: Well, my candidate is the Iron Sheik.
0: Okay, I can see that. Give me your give me your who, rationale.
1: Well, when he was in um, WWF in 79, he got a shot at, M- at back on an MSG by winning a Battle Royal. But yes. starting in 1980, um, up in Canada and Mid-Atlantic, and he started working a few other territories, he wasn't getting... The main event push, but he was slowly working his way up to the uh, semi main event, I would say. And he even had a couple token championships.
0: Yeah, I he did get that Madison Square Garden shot. It took place on June 4th, 1979. And you're right. They basically just didn't have enough confidence in him to, you know, say, "Okay, Bob Backlund versus the Hussein Arab at that point is the main event. But that, that was one of Backlund's best Madison Square Garden matches.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree completely.
0: I recommend that if you have not seen that, check it out. It might be on YouTube or something. I don't think it's on WWE Network, but go look, go look for it. It's really good. I took most underrated as Bobby Jaggers because I saw him in Florida and he was getting a push. But Bobby Jaggers was really good at this point in his career. He was excellent in the ring. He was a good talker. He was a great heel. They pushed him, but not as hard as I thought he deserved. And they kind of took the foot off the gas towards the end. And that was really Jaggers last great push. And I thought it was a shame. I thought he absolutely could have come to New York, could have come to Madison Square Garden and had a series against Bob Backlund.
1: Yeah, Jaggers uh, in 1980, that's when I was getting Florida wrestling, probably the same as you on the Satellite Programming Network. That was
0: it, yes. And, and he was getting the push at that time. Did he get the Southern title? I think he had the Southern never, title for a little while, yeah. But I, he it never came across as him being pushed as the number one bad guy. I think that was either Nikolai Volkov or Dick Slater.
1: Right. And uh, they were managed by Lord Alfred Hayes, right? Volkov
0: was? Or am I a year off on that? Uh, actually, no. Volkov was managed by Hayes. Jaggers was originally managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And then when they did the thing where Lord Sir Oliver Humperdinck had to be Dusty Rhodes valet for 30 days after that ended, uh, Jaggers was embarrassed by or Hayes was embarrassed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck's conduct and ordered Bobby Jaggers to turn on Sir Oliver Humperdinck. We talked about this a couple of years ago on, on Stick to Wrestling. It was one of the most brutal beatdowns I've ever seen on a wrestling show. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, he beat the hell out of him. It was like you know, wow, mind mind blowing. Most overrated wrestler of 1980, J- Jamie. Who do you think?
1: Uh, this is a personal uh, guy who I just never got. I still don't get Pedro Morales. Oh, yeah, I, I never got Pedro. Um, I wasn't around for the you know the championship run, and when he came in in 1980 to the WWF. I just didn't get it. I understood he was a former world champion, but watching the the TV swashes, I just, he just didn't throw me.
0: I was the exact same way. I mean, he had the currency of being a former WWF champion. Although that was a really long time ago by 1980. That was six years ago. And six years goes by fast in the wrestling business. A lot changes. Um, yeah. You know what him getting the, the, the match with Backlund against the Samoans and then winning the intercontinental title from Patera, I can definitely see that.
1: Yeah. I mean, when he did win the title from Patera, at that point, I had had enough of Camp Patera. So I was actually kind of uh, behind that. But when you get into 81 and you saw Morocco coming, I was actually happy Morocco beat him.
0: Oh, same here. Definitely same here. Morocco was, I, I was a heel fan definitely by then, and Morocco was. The cool heel, my most overrated. And I was talking to Jamie before the show. Um, I mentioned that I, I had the guy written down and it jumped in my head. No one was more overrated than this guy in 1980. My original pick was the Sheik, which was a good pick considering that he, he was burning Detroit or the wrestling scene in Detroit. And then I thought about it and I'm like, Vern Ganya, he was, he won the AWA world's heavyweight champion in 1980 as a 50-something-year-old. And Vern felt ancient when I first started getting the magazines in 76. And here he is four years later giving himself a retirement gift, a run with the world title. I thought that was insane. Yeah, when I first saw Vern in the magazines,
1: I guess I started getting the magazines late 78, early 79. I'm thinking, why is this 70-year-old guy still wrestling?
0: (laughs) He He was older than he looked. I mean, he looked older than he was, what I was trying to say. I mean, oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, when I got the, uh, what was it, the wrestler magazine and it covered the three big super cards of the summer, I couldn't believe that Vern had beaten Bachwinkle for the belt when I read it in the magazine.
0: No, I, I could not. I did not see Vern. I never saw Vern as someone who might be able to beat Nick Bachwinkle. I kind of saw Jim Brunzel. I definitely saw Billy Robinson, who was getting older by that point. But Vern just knocked my socks off with that push. I mean, this was right up there. I mean, no, it wasn't even right up there with Fritz von Erich having a run with the American title when he was so old. This was worse. This is the world title. Yeah. Now, John, I actually have one guy
1: that was kind of a uh, runner up to Pedro. And during my uh, research... I think Ox Baker was massively overrated in 1980. Okay. Uh, now, a couple couple promotions actually gave him belts. Really? Which ones? Oh, uh, okay. N- now you're going to make me actually look. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to say um, I saw it. And I had it written down. Now it's gone on me. We'll nah, uh, return okay. to that later. But yeah, um, looks like Central States. I think he gave him a belt and... I mean, oh, he was... and in Texas, they gave him the American Championship. Oh, that's right. Where he beat of all people Bruiser
0: Brody. I remember that. Texas was pushing their their big heels at one point in 1980, okay? Where right Oxford and Bulldog Brower. Yes. And I mean, no wonder that consider- that promotion at that time was considered a, a mid major at best. Ox at least had a good look, but I remember the oh, first time I crazy. saw him wrestle, it was '84 in Georgia, and I'm like, this guy can't move. It was noticeable.
1: Yeah, yeah. But by, by the time we really got to Stanley, he was horrible. But but then again, did he do the um, with the Grand Wizard in 1980?
0: I was just about to say, I need to correct myself. He had a three-match run in the WWF, which was not seen in all WWF markets. Um, the New York market had a, instead of having interviews like Boston did, they had a, a third match. In Boston, after the first two matches, you had like uh, seven or eight minutes of interviews for the upcoming Boston Garden show. That's
1: the way Philadelphia worked.
0: All you know, right. The, and uh, interviews on- in the
1: middle of the show on like, New York, where they were sporadic. Right and uh,
0: right, I like that. I like that method better. Oh, absolutely! You know, instead of just getting them all in at once. And yeah, the New York market had that third match, and OX Baker was on three times, and then he was gone. We we talked about that a while ago on Stick to Wrestling. If you and then Davey O'Hannon and
1: Larry Sharp were the kings of
0: the third match. Oh yes, and Johnny Rods and Baron McIlse Cluna would would sometimes get a win in that spot,
1: and Jose Estrada, all, all the guys that used to. Do the jobs to the main event and give them a you know a tough match. They would get the uh, the win in the third match.
0: I always appreciated having W O R on cable until the Weather Channel came along in January 1983 and knocked it off my local cable system. I'll never forgive the Weather Channel for that. We didn't lose it until 85. Fortunately, all right. And look, hey, promotion of the year, and there are some real candidates. Jamie, who was your pick? Well. My
1: runner-up is Bill Watts of Mid-South because that's right after he first took over and he set that territory on fire. Oh, yeah. But the promotion of the year, in my mind, was still the WWF with Bruno Zabisco on top. It just ruled for the entire year. and but, Or at and, least a solid eight months. But then no. it still carried... Zabisco, heat carried over right through December.
0: Yeah, uh, Zabisco was still in the WWF. I looked up the results because Larry came up with a story that he was blackballed from the WWF for something that happened at, at Shea Stadium. Well, he after Shea Stadium, he was still getting main event matches at the Philadelphia Spectrum against Bob Backlund.
1: Right. And then I think he even went into early 81 with the title shot at the Spectrum against Pedro after Pedro had beaten Patera.
0: That sounds about right. I I think I recall that correctly. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I just never bought that story that that's why Zabisco was never, was never, you know, was blackballed, was never brought back because he was still in the WWF, uh, five or six months after Shea Stadium. Yes, exactly. All right. I went with promotion of the year. I mean, to me, there were three really good ones that I got to see a lot of, um, WWF had a great year. They're not my top three, though, even though Backlund, I mean, he had a great match against Patera. He had two really good matches against Hulk Hogan at the Philadelphia Spectrum, so he had a good year, plus you had that feud, plus Pedro coming back. I mean, before you got tired of it, it wasn't that bad. My top three, the runners-up are Florida and Georgia, both excellent promotions in 1980. I've seen a lot of it. I mean, the television was fantastic. And that's um, the
1: first year. I'm sorry. Uh, that's the first year that uh, the superstation really kicks in big time. Yes, that's because the cable point. the cable explosion. I didn't have TBS at that point, but I do know other people that had was just getting TBS in 1980. So you're absolutely correct. Georgia was on fire.
0: Yeah, um, I started getting it uh, October 1981, and believe me, you know every every Saturday 6:05. That's what I was doing. Uh, promotion of the year. I went with Mid-South Wrestling. I mean, like you said, Bill Watts set it on fire with guys that I had not heard of just a year earlier. The Freebirds, Junkyard Dog, uh, I'd heard of Paul Orndorff, but I hadn't heard of the Grappler. Um, just, he just put that promotion together perfectly. And it's kind of sad because it didn't get a lot of play in the after magazines, but I, I mean, it was drawing huge crowds. Oh, yeah. Plus, you
1: like I, um, along with the Florida shows that were on the satellite program network, you had Lars Anderson's World League Wrestling on the satellite program network. And most of the time, the sh- the matches he was showing were the Mid-South matches. And just like you, that's where I got captivated by J- JYD, the Freebirds, DiBiase, and the Grappler. And Paul yeah. Orndorff, Terry Orndorff, uh, you know, it was... It's awesome.
0: Terry Orndorff, shout out. I mean, and Paul Orndorff was such a great heel in, in Mid-South. He, he had never been a heel before. And guys can surprise you. Ted DiBiase is the best heel I've ever seen. And, you know, there was some doubt with Ladd and Watts whether or not that would work. Well, he hit it out of the park in 82 and 83. Oh, yeah. And
1: in, in 80, he was just returning from his WWF run.
0: Right, and we've talked about this. I mean, there he was supposed to get a run with the NWA title in 1981. I don't know the details, but I know Ted was the the one guy who kind of got screwed out of the NWA title, then the UWF title, and then the WWF title. Like he was supposed yep. to get runs with all those belts, and it didn't happen. Never happened for him. All right, best on interviews. So many candidates, Jamie. Who did you ultimately go with? My
1: this is gonna be a shocker. Cause I went back to my satellite program network days. Of course, Albano, Captain Lou. There's not much more that can be said. His local interviews for the for the arena shows. I, I mean, looking back, you can tell he was drunk as a skunk. <laughs> but those things were absolutely freaking riots. It, it, I mean, I was laughing at that time. And then um a couple years. Later, when I started getting videotapes, I got a whole bunch of Pacific Northwest from 1980 and got to see Piper. So kind of reflecting back, Piper in the Northwest, while not Piper of Georgia and Mid-Atlantic, he was awesome. And then you had had Michael Hayes with his first big shot there in Mid-South with the Freebirds. But my choice from the satellite program network, because I look forward to these interviews every single Saturday, Randy Macho Man Savage. Oh wow! From the ICW, um, they would have like usually one ICW match, and if they didn't, there was a Randy Savage interview like every Saturday. And I was captivated by that guy, and I followed him closely after that. I always looked for his name in the, the in the sheets when I first got uh, started getting them in '82 and '83, and any chance I got to see his name in the magazines. And then it was a must when I first started trading tapes to try to get
0: hold of ICW stuff, just so I could see Savage wrestle and talk. That, that I, have not, I have not seen a lot of Savage from that era, and it's time for me to start looking for it, as a matter of fact. I, I think I have a tape, a few tapes of old ICW clucking dust, but I will definitely check that out. I mean, it's just I, a prelude to what was to come. I mean, they, they, it was great. Oh, Randy Savage, you know, he was such a good wrestler. He's he's actually a little bit underrated on the stick. By some, not by me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had Albano as my number four. He cracked me up. And 1980 was probably his best year. And like you said, he was probably drunk as a skunk nine-tenths of the time. But he would do these rambling interviews, and then he would walk off. And he was funny. And then he'd walk off still rambling, and Vince would just kind of put his head down and... Look at look into the camera and say, Captain Lou Albano, ladies and gentlemen. And he'd kind of <laughs> shake his head, dude, all disgusted. Roddy Piper was my number three. I have seen his work from the Pacific Northwest. Um, hi, I have seen his early mid-Atlantic work. I think he showed up there like November 1980. And this was just the beginning for Roddy Piper. He was phenomenal. My number two, as you mentioned, Michael Hayes, who I think may have become the most underrated professional wrestler of all time. Uh, I I mean, all I see on the internet nowadays is Hayes being disparaged. He was an absolutely freaking great interview in the 1980s. And we've talked about this before. He kind of stopped trying. It looked like in 1989, but before that, I mean, he was one of the best in the business. And guy was a heat magnet. Yeah. And And, and he wasn't
1: that bad in the ring. I mean, I always enjoyed, even before I ever knew what work rate was or anything, I always liked Michael Hayes in the ring. And to this day, he is in
0: my top five favorite wrestlers of all time. All right. There you go. I mean, and like, I I mean, maybe it was a time and place thing. You had to be there in the eighties to appreciate Michael Hayes, but he was phenomenal. And Jamie, were you watching TBS when he turned babyface?
1: Yes, I was. I had just uh, started getting TBS. And okay. I think the very first show. Yes, it was the very first show I ever saw of TBS was him coming out, apologizing to the fans. And then, um, which led into the him and Terry Gordy with the, giving him uh, the watch and the baby bonnets. And it, yeah, it, it was a great turn.
0: It really was. And I mean, I, I, when I first started getting TBS, I see, you know, Michael Hayes is a baby phase. And I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. I was taken aback. I thought there was no way he could ever play that role. And it's like, I never learned. I didn't think Ric Flair could be a babyface either, but he was.
1: I mean, looking back when he first came out for that interview. Now that we know what we know about professional wrestling, he came out dressed in white. (laughs) That's a really good point. I never thought of that before. It's just like Alex Karras in Mad Bull. He was always the heel until that. And cage match where he came out in the white white tights and a white hat.
0: Oh man, I don't think I've seen that movie since the middle of the eighties. Been like thirty five years. His name has already come up. Best on interviews, and I'm I'm strictly doing this in the year nineteen eighty. Ric Flair. I mean, the t- the turn finally happened the year before, and Ric Flair as a baby face was amazing uh, to the point where. I question whether or not he should have ever been turned heel again especially in the Carolinas.
1: Oh yeah, as a baby face he could he would he rivaled the Hulk Hogan baby face of the mid 80s. Yes. In, in Mid Atlantic. And if they would have just kept him face just like you said maybe we never even see Dusty Rhodes come along in the JCP and they might actually stood a chance against Vince later down the line.
0: Uh, you know what? I, I, I disagree with that. I think Vince and the WWF, they were such a machine. They had su- that, that front office that, you know, and Crockett was, was still kind of running at small time. I almost hate to say it, but I just don't think, I just don't think the cr- company run by Jim Crockett had a chance against WWF. We're going to be talking a little bit more about Jim Crockett later. Um, announcer of the year, Jamie, who do you got? I have three. Two of them were the staples,
1: Gordon and Lance. Yep. But I loved Vince McMahon as a kid, it's especially when he did the uh, Spectrum shows. And then toward the end of 1980, I got to see him do the Madison Square Garden shows. And he was the Howard Cosell of professional wrestling.
0: That's what they wanted him to be.
1: And he got a 13-year-old me, hook, line, and sinker. I loved
0: Vince. I thought Vince was excellent as an announcer before 1984 came along and he decided he, he needed to be as big a carnival barker as Mean Gene Okerlund.
1: Right, after 84, that that Vince I didn't care for, but the Vince I grew up with, I really thought was good.
0: And if you haven't seen Vince, I mean, I'm sure, you know, go to YouTube, type in like WWF 1970, uh, 1982 or something like that, or check out a Madison Square Garden show before Hogan got there. Vince was good at his job. Oh, yeah. In 1978
1: and 79, he did all the Spectrum shows. I mean, Dick Graham was there with him, but
0: Vince was the guy doing the play-by-play. Yeah, I, I do remember that. <laughs> they brought in Cal Rudman for whatever he, he, reason. Yeah, that was you in know,
1: 81. I, I guess Vince just didn't feel like coming to Philly anymore.
0: Okay, I was uh, going to say, do you know what, what led to that?
1: No, I'm I'm just guessing he didn't want to, you know, go to Philly anymore. I mean, look, he was there for almost 10 years doing TV tapings every three weeks. Yeah. maybe just grew tired of going to the city
0: Oh, baby all right and was... you know
1: you know what sucks I lived six miles from the Philadelphia arena and never knew they'd take there thus I never was able to ask my father to take me
0: oh wow I, I, I mean they I mean how would you know they never on television they never identified where they were coming from they said you know they said did they say the Pennsylvania state athletic Commission i don't, I don't think do no, they, they they would only say
1: sanctioned and supervised by the State Athletic Commission. Okay. They, they
0: and then that, that goes all the way up to Joe Q in 84 before they left Allen. All right, yeah, you're right. For announcer of the issue, yours is Vince McMahon. That's, a, that's right. a good one. I've got Vince at number three. Lance Russell at number two. And you can guess, Gordon Soley is number one. I mean, back then, Gordon was still really good. And he was not only doing Georgia, he was doing Florida. So I, I put all that together. And I'm like, you know what? Gordon, it's kind of Gordon, and then second place.
1: I can't argue that at all. I mean, Vince is just my opinion. Gordon's your opinion, and it's a damn good opinion because, actually, there was two Gordon solely. You just said Florida and
0: Georgia, but the Florida one was much better than the one in Georgia. I agree. I, I always thought. he. I thought he called the matches better because Florida had better in-ring Action, but Gordon was kind of the glue that held. Well, he was the glue that held Florida together too. But he was like the glue that held that Georgia uh, per- television show together. I thought until he kind of fell off a cliff in '82.
1: Yeah, well, he, hey, he's the only man I could have turned Piper face at that point.
0: And that was an amazing turn. Your Morocco is ready to beat up Gordon Soley and Roddy Piper. Another guy I, I thought would never turn baby face comes to the rescue is a really good time rookie of the year. This one is a tough one because I don't know when a lot of guys started. So I decided to go with what pro wrestling illustrated had as their top four. And here are the candidates, Barry Windham who started in 1979. So close enough. Rick McGraw, who I think started in eighty seventy five 75 or 76 were way off on this one. Terry Taylor, who I think started in 1980 in Florida, and Tom Pritchard, who I think started in 1980 in Los Angeles. I could be wrong on uh, any of those. Jamie, I think this one's kind of an easy one. Who'd you go with? Well,
1: I think it's that guy that I co hosted with you about two years ago where we had the uh, show on, Mr. Barry Windham. Yes. Yeah. Uh, ba- Barry's a runaway with, yeah. with this one. I mean, you just saw the talent from day number one. And like six months, seven months in, into 1980, he even got the uh, TV title win over Mr. Saito.
0: Yeah, and I think it was 1980 that he had a match on TV. It might have been 80, early 81. I could be off on this. He had a match on TV against Dick Murdoch, and it was supposed to be a babyface match. And I remember sitting there watching my TV saying, Barry, look out for this guy. I don't, I don't know. And yep, Murdoch turned heel. And Barry learned a lesson. Yes, Barry learned a valuable lesson. You be the one who turns on Dusty Rose, not the other way around. All right, manager of the year.
1: Can, can we just backtrack just quick? Absolutely.
0: Second.
1: In my research,
0: uh-huh. you're gonna
1: you're gonna hear that a lot for the next. Uh, well, we got about a half hour to go. Tom Pritchard had a hell of a 1980. Really, he, Tell he me was, more. He, he was in LaBelle's promotion mm-hmm. out there in L.A. And the guy held the America's Tag Team title four different times with two different partners. The, the first time he um, partnered with Apollo Jalisco and okay. won that belt twice. I have and never then, heard
0: of that person.
1: I never heard of him either. Um, but the next guy you have heard of. And, Chris Adams. No. No no way.
0: No, this guy will
1: put you to sleep. Al Madrill. <laughs>
0: Oh man, poor Al. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I thought for, I, I know Chris Adams and Tom Pritchard teamed up somewhere, maybe in Portland. It's that's possible,
1: but they, I mean, they probably teamed up there also. But uh, according to the listing that I saw, um, him
0: and Adams never won the tag team times. Okay, you're probably right. Then I am probably confused as usual. <laughs> All right. Manager of the year 1980. I, I have an idea who your pick's going to be, Jamie. Go right ahead. Well, you probably think I'm going to say Lou Albano or the Grand Wizard of Russell. I thought you were going to say Lou Albano.
1: Okay. I got a sleeper.
0: Uh
1: huh. A guy who could actually be considered a breakthrough star of the year. Jimmy um, Hart. Jimmy Hart, that is a good pick. Because that's where. He, uh, Lawler breaks his leg. Jimmy gets the bus out, rolls over him frontwards and backwards. And then the rest of the year, that's where the first family forms.
0: Yes. And you could guess that you could say that Jimmy Hart carried the heel side in Memphis for about five years. Absolutely. And that, that first
1: year is the most important one because Lawler was out all year. I mean, he returns as a face. went went like October, November, but he missed basically that whole entire year.
0: Yeah. And, and really, I mean, I hate to say this, the only really interesting thing going on in Memphis at that time was Jimmy Hart. I mean, they, they tried so hard to to fill Lawler's shoes and it just wasn't happening.
1: Right. They had uh, what he managed um, and Jimmy Valiant before he, he went totally crazy. You know, Valiant was still semi-normal then. And then you had the, uh, the Valiant Tommy Rich feud. Yeah. I mean, in, the, in, in that summer before Rich ends up turning heel.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Jimmy Hart had a, had an excellent year. He's on my list. And mine's a little bit of a curveball. I was debating between Captain Lou Albano and the guy I ultimately went with, which was Sir Oliver Humperdinck. I had never seen him before. Obviously, I'd, I'd seen him in magazines, but he was the top guy in Florida. And again, he carried the heel side. If you were. In 1980, if you were a heel uh, in Florida before Humperding turned, obviously, like you were nothing if you weren't in Sir Oliver Humperding's army. That's right. So, anyway, most uh, let's go most outstanding wrestler, which is an Observer Award for 1980. Who do you got, Jamie?
1: Thinking back, what did either of us know about work rate back then? Not much. Not not much at all. So I'm I'm just kind of basing it on. Who I thought was a really good wrestler back then and or who I might have seen on tape a year or two later that I was really impressed with. And my main three are the three world champs. Nick Bockwinkle, Harley Race and Bob Backlund. And then I'll have to go with Harley as the most outstanding wrestler. Um, his title defenses all over the world, yes, it's true. He really did go all over the world. He did, and guys, he just a short list Dusty, Austin Idol, Tommy Rich, Wrestling Two, Manny Fernandez, Steve Kern, Giant Baba, Dick Murdoch, Dick Slater, Chavo Guerrero. The spoiler,
0: he wrestled everybody. I missed those days. I miss those days of having territories and having an NWA champion that just had this this long list of guys that he would defend against. And, you know, you, you got to remember, like, in Florida, it wasn't Harley Race versus Dusty Rhodes, the top guy every time. You would get, you know, Race against Barry Windham, against Steve Kern, against Mike Graham.
1: Yes, and even
0: on TV, you'd get those matches once in a while. Once in a while, but they did have them. That That's a good pick. Mine ultimately went to Ric Flair, who, again, had a Dynamite 1980 Uh, And I think by this point, he was the best wrestler, if not in the world, because Fujinami at this point was phenomenal, but we're keeping it to U.S. only anyway. But I just can't think of a better in-ring performer at this time than Ric Flair. I considered Bob Backlund, and he had some really good matches in 1980, but he had such a stinker against Harley Race, September 22nd, 1980. That I'm just like, okay, Fla- I have not seen Ric Flair in one of these pretty much ever. Yeah, I was so disappointed
1: when uh, the first MSG I show I saw on USA Network, they didn't show the match. Yeah. And I didn't see it really until, um, I guess, into the 90s before I ever saw that match. And I basically fell asleep. It, you're right. It was just boring.
0: It is available if on on the WWE Network if you need to help falling asleep. uh, Another guy that was really good in the ring in 1980. I've seen uh, enough of him to feel like I can say this. He's come up on this program before. Chavo Guerrero, Like I was really taken aback the first time I saw him in Southwest Championship Wrestling. I, I, I'm sorry he didn't have a bigger career because he was great.
1: Yeah, I always thought Chavo should have done more. I mean, I... Again, back to 1980 is when I first discovered that on a uh, Spanish-speaking station out of Patterson, New Jersey, they had the L.A. shows. Mm -hmm. And Chavo was on those when I first started watching. Yeah, another guy. Really impressed by him there. And then he actually, I forget who he wrestled at Chase Stadium. Um, But I was really impressed when I saw him. On that Shea Shea Stadium show, because instead of back on Harley Race for that hour draw, during that hour, they showed matches from
0: uh, Shea Stadium, and one of them was his. I am trying to think of who his opponent is, and I am getting frustrated. Uh, Was it Jose Estrada? Probably. It had to be somebody like the same size that way. It
1: certainly wasn't Larry Sharp, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) Nope, that was Pat Patterson, if I recall correctly. No, nope, uh, it was Patterson Kamada. I'm all over the place he, on that. He this. got a
1: Noki, a pretty boy Larry Stark.
0: Okay. Show. Oh, man. <laughs> Why I know that? I don't know. Because <laughs> you have a good memory. All right. Uh, let me see. Let's go to most hated wrestler of the year. And this would be a best heel in the observer. I mean, I think one guy kind of stands out at this on this year, but let's hear what's, let's, let's hear what Jamie has
1: to say. All right. Well, I got my, my top three um the first one from what i can tell and i was got the tapes a couple years later playboy buddy rose nice and in, in the northwest they hated his guts i mean they were throwing stuff at him in the ring and everything back then
0: and buddy was a really he was a really good worker and a really good talker I mean, and I'm not saying this to be mean, but, you know, you, you got to work on that physique, buddy. You can't just fall back on a ha-ha, I'm fat gimmick. In
1: 1980, while he was heavy, he wasn't as heavy as he was in 90 or 81 during his WWF run, or he, even as time progressed. But Buddy could move.
0: Yeah. even so, when Buddy, Even when Buddy was completely out of control at the end of his career, we're talking like Portland, in 1990 I mean he was I'm sorry he was morbidly obese he could still wrestle it was it was amazing oh yeah absolutely all right my, all right, my number oh no go ahead no I'm sorry I, I was going to say I want to hear your number two uh, my number two would be guys
1: really in their
0: their first breakout
1: appearance and it's not one wrestler it's not two wrestlers it's three wrestlers and you know where I'm going oh yeah the fabulous free birds.
0: They're my number two as well. well. Hayes is my number two. I don't have the free birds, but just as good.
1: Okay. Well, we can make Hayes the number two, but uh, all three of them combined. When they added buddy to the act, I, I think it actually improved him more because Hayes became more of the, of the voice. And he didn't have to get in the ring all the time. And he pulled the old neck injury and they had a tough time getting him in the ring. And after the J Y D blinding angle, it was J.Y.D. Uh, Hayes that drew the 26,000 in the Superdome.
0: Yeah, it's it's always the heels that really are the ones who draw, even though Junkyard Dog certainly had a lot to do with that. Oh. But, I mean, you, you need a heel to really make this machine go.
1: Right. I mean, we'll talk about, I'm sure J.Y.D.'s coming back up pretty soon. But uh, And then my number one, being a WWF guy, it has to be Larry
0: Zabisco. I mean, you're one one and two, or my one and two. Larry Zabisco, I mean, he's kind of crushing it in 1980. Yes,
1: he was. And as Barry Rose would say, you're 100% right, John
0: McAdam. (laughs) (laughs) And really, it, it wasn't like he just got handed this angle, which would have been good enough anyway. I mean, anyone, anytime Bruno's protege turns on him, I mean, that's a license to print money. But Larry Zabisco, was actually really good in the role. He was, you know, his interviews were fantastic. He was resentful. He he had no remorse whatsoever, and he was determined to just get rid of Bruno Sammartino. And what a difference from the babyface Zabisco, uh, even the one that we
1: saw with Tony Guerrero. I mean, yeah. I never saw this mean streak going to pop out in this guy. No, Larry- I was a Zabisco fan until he turned heel.
0: <laughs> you know, Larry could get fired up occasionally on an interview, but for the most part, he was just a, a white meat babyface.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly what he was, and he wasn't even cut at that point. I mean, he he had kind of the a thick Buddy Rose type body going on, and then but when he returned after losing the tag team titles, what he went to mid Atlantic, I think, for a little bit, and then he returned back to the WWF. He was cut pretty well at that point.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, and Zabisco, you know, to me, I, I, he, he came back really quickly. I thought to do the Bruno angle. I mean, I might've waited a little while longer, but then again, Bruno is near the end of his career and I, I, I it certainly drew. I mean, every Saturday night, the WWF was drawing a hundred thousand dollars at an arena with those two on top. Yeah.
1: I, they sold out to Philadelphia spectrum, but in March for their first match, and that's the first time the spectrum had sold out in over two years. Oh wow.
0: And and what made it good too is you could have Bruno with a hot program on top in one city and send Bob Backlund to another major city and boom, now you're having two hundred thousand dollar houses every Saturday night. It was and, I mean it's a phenomenal time. Yes, yeah,
1: and looking at the results, you're right. That's exactly what they did. They started running
0: the split shows on the weekend, which they never really did before. No, and they they barely had the roster to do it. You would have like the the top match, then you'd have like the Samoans or something as the number two match, and then it would be almost all prelim guys after that. And it yeah, worked. But, but you were lucky out in Boston. You'd get Pete Doherty against Fred Marzano. I would have
1: died <laughs> to see that
0: match. I used to be pals with Fred Marzino. He had a lot of cool stories. Good guy. I hope he's <laughs> listening. All right. Um, let me see. Did yeah, you know, yeah, so I had Zabisco Hayes my number three was Dick Slater, who I thought was fantastic in Florida. You know what? Now that I think about it, I would probably go Albano over Slater, but Dick Slater had a was really good in 1980 and deserves a shout out. No, definitely. All right. Most popular wrestler of the year or best babyface, as they say in the Observer. Jamie, share your thoughts. Well, of course you you have the the American Dream,
1: Dusty Dr. Rhodes. Or you got Mr. Wrestling 2. Or, in the Northeast, the most popular wrestler of all time, Bruno San Martino. But for 1980, I'm going to go where we just went. 26,000 people, Superdome, Junkyard Dog. That's mine. The the blinding angle. Yeah. And where I've heard stories um, where people were actually sending money to JYD's house because they thought he was actually... On uh, un- you know, wasn't getting the uh, income coming in, and those people just loved him. And you had the, uh, what's the name, Ricardo Coleman? Ricardo Coleman, yeah. Uh, he was there for all that, and I remember hearing him on your show talk about it.
0: Yeah, Ricardo, Ric- Ric- I'm so I'm so jealous of Ricardo getting to grow up on Mid South Wrestling and not missing an episode. He's my first internet buddy, as I mentioned when he was yeah. on. So, okay, so you've got JYD as number one. I've got JYD as number one for obvious reasons. I mean, he was like the kick-ass babyface. Like, you know, he was the babyface you didn't mess with. His interviews were fantastic. He had that charisma, and it was a breakout year for him. So he's my number one as well. Um, Did you
1: ever hear, was it Watts' idea or was it Ernie Ladd's idea
0: to push Sylvester Ritter as the junkyard dog? It was Watts' idea, as a matter of fact lad if i re- remember the story correctly lad wasn't giving him enough of a push and Watts was watch i think he actually fired lad as booker and you know watch uh, lad got to talk his way back in but Watts was dead serious about pushing this guy and he, he let the grappler have it one one night too because grappler was not giving jyd enough offense like he wanted this guy as his top star i agree okay and do, do, let me see. Who's your number two? I just got two? distracted for a minute. I'm sorry. That's okay. Who's your number two, Jamie? I think you, we have the same number two. All right. Well,
1: my my number two is Bruno. Same here. Yeah, guy selling out. You know, in his farewell tour, just selling out everywhere. What they put? Uh, twenty two thousand at Shea Stadium for that show.
0: Oh, uh, I think it was more than that. I think it was or, north. It was like thirty five oh, thousand. if I recall okay. correctly. I,
1: and they only promote. There's the kicker. They only promoted that in New York City. There was no promotion in Philadelphia for that at all. If I hadn't been watching WOR, I would have never known that they were having a big show.
0: Same here. It was never mentioned on the Boston show. I only knew about it from the WOR TV.
1: Yeah, that was great being a week ahead of the uh, – in Philly, it was a week ahead of the Philly TV. So I it was used to two tell weeks my, ahead of Boston. Oh, really? Yeah, I used to tell all my friends, oh, you got to watch this Saturday. This is what's going to happen. How do you know? I just know. <laughs> I I wouldn't tell him how I knew.
0: I didn't start getting WR on cable until February 1980, and I was in New York on October 18th, 1978, was the date that Peter Maivia turned on Bob Backlund. And I'm I'm telling all my friends who watch wrestling, Maivia is a bad guy now. They're like, no, no, he's not going to do that. And then two weeks later, he turns on Backlund. Yes,
1: after turning on Chief Jack. Oh, yeah exactly Backlund
0: should have known better that was let me see the Backlund turn aired on october 18th and then a very apprehensive chief J strongbow climbs in the ring at madison square garden uh two days later on the 20th and my via obviously turns on and walks back to the dressing room and oh, that's
1: right. the, that was the, the Backlund turn was first okay.
0: yeah and then they did that they did that in like every city my via you know Turns on Chief J. strongboro poor, poor Chief J.
1: Oh, he deserved it. When you look back, he deserved it. <laughs> Who was your number three? Well, my number three is Dusty. Dusty's I mean, I was, my number four. <laughs> yeah, I I, I still love Dusty at that time. I was watching him on, on Florida. I had caught Dusty um, in late 78 when I was first watching the WWF, and he was – Actually, he worked three or four straight shows at the Spectrum in late 78. And he still made a couple of appearances in early 79 and then getting to see him again on Florida Wrestling. And plus, he was Dusty Rhodes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Dusty was my number four. And I was a huge fan of Dusty probably before, like, 85, 86, when I was just like, okay, you're making me shoot Choose who to cheer for between Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. I'm cheering for Ric Flair. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. I mean, he came up to Boston and had a main event run against superstar Billy Graham in, in late 77, early 78. And, I'm um, you know, he just came on TV out of nowhere. And this guy had it.
1: And he had it almost to the end. I mean, yeah. his, his TV persona was great. Uh, back in what, what 86, 87, I used to tell people. I'd love Dusty Rhodes. I can't stand Virgil Runnels.
0: It, it's <laughs> funny. I'm like you, I have a love-hate relationship with Dusty Rhodes. And that's pretty, you know what? You probably just summed it up best for me.
1: Yeah. And then uh, I, I got to meet Dusty one time. And uh, it was quite the thrill. But it was also kind of a, a letdown. Uh, I had gone down to Florida in 89 um, for spring break and me and my buddy went to the uh, dusty homecoming show oh wow and, and we weaseled our way into the back uh, dropping the name larry sharp so we, we got in the back and met everybody um we got to meet gordon solely and uh before the show and then after the show gordon was just standing there smoking a heater so we walked up and talked to him for a little bit and he said hey guys uh what do you well where are you going after the after this and we're like I'm probably just going back to the hotel he goes, No, no, no. You want to come to this place called, I believe it was called McDitton's in Tampa, uh, where they all the wrestlers would go back after the show. So I end up, my buddy can't get in because he's too young, but he insists that I go in anyway. So I see Gordon Soley. Gordon asked me to sit down with him. Another guy sits down with us, who we had met during the show, because I think we're the only two people that knew who he was, Otto Vons. Oh, wow. So I end up sitting there drinking with Otto Vons and Gordon Soley for about an hour when Dusty comes walking over and says, uh, excuse me, sir, what's your name? And I said, Jamie Ward. And he goes, well, Jamie, I'm Dusty Rose. I'm the American Dream. My pleasure to meet you, my friend. Wow. I need to talk to Big Otto for a few moments. So if you don't mind, I'm going to steal Otto away from you, too. (laughs) I don't care. <laughs> I'm still sitting there with Gordon Sully, but it was quite a thrill and a great story to tell. I love selling that one.
0: How was So Otto Vons was cool to you. Very cool. Wow.
1: I, I,
0: and I have we, no idea. I've just heard like some negative Otto Vaughn stories.
1: No, well, we, we saw him and I said, Tom, is it? And he goes, that's Otto von's." And we go over and we say, uh, Mr. Vons, it you know, it, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he goes, Oh, you know, it's nice to meet you guys, too. So we talked to him for a few I minutes, mean, just normal conversation. And then so he he remembered me back at the bar. And, you know, the strange part about all the wrestlers I've met and I've had a chance to just have like a little bit one on one normal conversations with. They all want to know about the post office. <laughs> I did so did not m- see most that of the conversation going. with Otto Vons and Gordon Sully we were either talking about the United States Postal Service or we were talking about NASCAR. Otto was a NASCAR fan. Figure wow. that one out.
0: I, how does he <laughs> get it in Austria?
1: I have no idea, but him and Gordon were talking on the same level, my head just spinning around. I mean, the only two names I knew at that point were Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty.
0: I, I barely know anything about NASCAR, but that that is a really cool story. Thanks for sharing. Like I said, I love to tell that one. You just gave me a layup, so I had to tell it. <laughs> I told the story on the show before, but we have new listeners. I mean, I, I met Dusty once. I think you were there in 1980 at the Marriott in Philadelphia. And one of my friends says to me, you know, you're not going to get your picture taken with Dusty Rhodes, which means I am absolutely getting my picture taken with Dusty Rhodes. Don't challenge 22-year-old me like that. <laughs> and, and I walked up to him like, Dusty, I just want to say I'm a big fan. I came up from I came down from Boston. Uh, to, you know, to see the NWA, you're my favorite wrestler. I see, you know, just thank you. And he's like, no problem. Can I get a picture with you really quick, Dusty? And he said, sure. No, I got the picture. And someone on our Facebook group was actually nice enough to, it's not a good picture, but he was nice enough to colorize it. My most popular wrestler, my number three, barely beating out Dusty Rhodes was Mr. Wrestling two, who I thought did a lot of great work in Georgia. He had that great feud against the mass superstar. He was, again, a kick-ass babyface. He wasn't just someone who came out and talked a little slowly and, and you know, kind of like like he's Johnny Bench or something. Like, Mr. Wrestling 2 had real fire, and I enjoyed him as a babyface. I know he has his detractors, but I am not one of them.
1: Yeah, I, I always enjoyed too, and the, the Georgia stuff I've seen from this time period,
0: it, it was easy to get behind too. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He was a great babyface. I hope you guys are having as much fun listening to that as Jamie and I had recording it. I want to thank Jamie for being on the show, doing a doubleheader. He's going to be back next week. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does with Stick to Wrestling. And among other things, we're we're going to be talking about the top five wrestlers of 1980. And we're going to talk a little bit about Jim Crockett Jr.'s recent appearance on Conrad the Mortgage Guy's podcast. Jim said some things that I just didn't believe, so we'll get to that next week. I want to thank you all for listening. Have a great next seven days. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.